I found out the towers were hit while I was on my way to work at 6.30 a.m. I can't remember the day. It was the middle of the week. Uh, I think it was a Tuesday. My ex-wife called me. Uh, while on the phone, she told me that one of the towers was hit. And while she was on the phone, she started yelling as a second plane hit the other tower. 20 minutes later, or it seemed like 20 minutes, I can't really remember, the towers were gone. And I remember telling her, telling my wife, ex-wife, what do you mean they're gone? Because I'd been to New York, I'd seen the towers, and they were just huge. I, I couldn't even conceive. They were blocks wide. I couldn't conceive of those things going down. And she said, no, they're gone. They're absolutely gone. I remember going to CNN, and, and back then there wasn't streaming video online. You, The streaming video was very poor quality. I kept pressing F5, which is the refresh button on my computer, to see if something would come up, and then finally the image came up where the towers were gone. I said this story before uh, in a podcast. I think it was may have been last year or the year before. But today I'm going to go over the entire timeline of that day and some audio that kind of will make this more than just a reading of what happened. I'm doing this because so much happened on that day. So much happened that changed the way our children are living. They've lost a lot of their freedom. We've lost a lot of our, their, our freedoms because of that day. Um, they will never understand what it's like just to walk on a plane. They will never understand certain things that freedoms that we had, my father and myself had before that day. And the other reason is just too many people are forgetting. This timeline is from the 911 Memorial. Uh, it's The site is 911.memorial.org. It has so much stuff. I encourage you to visit and donate if you can. This is Gene, and you're listening to Dumbasses Talking Politics. Hey, hey, this is Gene. Welcome back to Dumbasses Talking Politics. We're having a special edition today, uh, basically in remembrance of September 11, 2001. Uh, this is going to be a longer podcast, and I don't care. It's one of those things that, you know, you just sometimes you can't shorten things up, and this is one of them. So like I said, we're going to go through this timeline. It's called, um, it's the 911memorial.org. I think I told you it was 911.memorial. Well, I didn't have my glasses on. So it's 911memorial.com, and we're going to go through... Everything that happened, minute by minute, and uh, not really talk about it, not really ponder on it, and I'm going to have some nice audio in there to really show you the horror of that day. So let's start it off. September 11, 2001, 5.45 a.m. Hijackers Mohammed Atta, Abdul Aziz Alamari, passed through security at Portland International Air Jetport in Maine at 5.45 a.m. Ada and Almore. Ada was actually one of he fought with Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. He hated Americans, and he was really, really wanted to do this. As a matter of fact, one of the people interviewed actually said that when they talked to Ada, who speaks pretty well good English, um, they said they just got a creepy feeling with him, and if it wasn't for the fact that he was brown. They would have. They was an Arab. 
they would have actually called the police on him because he just looked very strange, very, very angry. So Ada and Almari boarded a commuter flight to Boston Logan International Airport. Then they jumped on American Airlines Flight 11. There were three other hijackers on board and that joined uh, Ada and Almari. Less than two hours later, the five terrorists who hijacked airline Flight 11 are videotaped as they pass through the Washington Dulles International Airport, uh, their checkpoint. They were searched, and they nothing was found. Three of the hijackers, Nawaf al-Hazami, Khalid al-Mindar, and Mahed Moheg, Mo, Mahed Mohed, set off metal detectors, but no weapons were found. Uh, the hijackers were carrying concealed knives on their persons, or in their carry-on luggage. So they did have, they did have knives. Now, before 9/11, airports were not required to have security cameras. I know checkpoints. Now, video, uh, videotape security checkpoints. So they weren't required to have cameras. I know that seems really odd today, but that is a thing. And knives were actually allowed on planes. A blade of less than four inches was allowed on a plane. Can you imagine that today? I can't even take my two-ounce bottle of shampoo. At 6 a.m., September 11th is the primary election day for New York City. The uh, polling places have opened. Primary elections are being held for the mayor, public advocate, comptroller, and a bunch of other little city offices. At 7.59, American Airlines Flight 11 takes off from Boston. 11 crew members, 76 passengers, 5 hijackers are on board. It's filled with 76,400 pounds of fuel as it heads towards Los Angeles. Two of the hijackers are in first class, they're the the strongmen, and three others are in business class. At 8.15, United Airlines takes off from Boston for Los Angeles. Nine crew members, 51 passengers, five hijackers are on board. The flight is loaded with 76,000 pounds of fuel. Two of the hijackers were in first class. Three were in business class. At 8.19, flight attendee Betty Ann Ong alerts American Airlines ground personnel to a hijacking underway on flight 11 reporting that the cockpit is unreachable she's using an in-flight phone and she transmits details about the incident including that the uh, that the hijackers are using pepper spray and nobody can breathe in the cockpit and she thinks people have been stabbed let's listen to that now it's tough to listen to you got to remember this is 2001 so the technology is not quite as good as it is today Let's listen to Betty Young. Number three in the back, um, the cockpit's not answering. Somebody's stabbed in business class. And um, I think there's mates that we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. Which flight are you on? Flight 12. And what seat are you in? Ma'am, are you there? Yes. What, what, what seat are you in? Ma'am, what seat are you in? We're a flight. We just left Boston. We're up in the air. I know. We're what? supposed to go to L.A. and the cockpit's not answering their phone. Okay, but what seat are you sitting in? What's the number of your seat? Okay, I'm in my jump se
I'm sorry, did you say you're the flight attendant? Hello? Yes, hello? What is, what is your name? Hi, you, you're going to have to speak up. I can't hear you. Sure. What is your name? Okay, my name is Betty Ong. I'm number three on flight 11. Okay. And the cockpit is not answering their phone. And there's somebody staff in business class, and there's we can't breathe in business class. Somebody's got mace or something. Can you describe the person that you said someone is what in business class? Um, I'm, I'm sitting in the back. Somebody's coming back from business. If you can hold on for one second, Certainly. they're coming back. The call lasted for about 25 minutes. Two minutes into the call at 821, the hijackers turned off the plane's uh, transponder. Now, the transponder allows air traffic control to identify and monitor the plane's flight path, path making, it, making the plane essentially invisible. The ground crews had to depend on ground-based radar to actually keep track of the plane and where it was going. Meanwhile, American Airlines authorities relay the details of Ong's message to the operations centers in Texas. At 8.32, flight attendant Madeline Amy Sweeney reports the hijacking of Flight 11 to a friend on the ground uh, who worked at Boston Logan International Airport. Over a, the course of approximately 12 minutes, Sweeney provides more information on the hijacking, including a description of, of the hijackers themselves. At 8.20, American Airlines Flight 77 en route to Los Angeles, takes off from Washington Dulles International Airport. Six crew members, 53 passengers, and five hijackers on board, and it has 50,000 gallons, pounds of fuel. Three terrorists are in Zone A, which is in the front of the plane, and two terrorists are in Zone B. That would be considered coach on a regular plane. At 8.24, attempting to communicate with passengers and crew inside Flight 11's cabin, Mohammed Atta presses the wrong button and broad and broadcasting instead of to air traffic control and unwittingly alerting controllers to the attacks. Minutes later, Atta again makes an unintended transmission to ground control. Here it is. We have some planes that stay quiet and we'll be okay. We're returning to the airport. At least one of Otto's transmissions is picked up by the pilot of Flight 175, Victor J. Saracini, who will then inform the FAA about the plane being hijacked. What he doesn't know, he's only a few minutes from his own plane being hijacked. At 8.30, morning activities have started at the World Trade Center, a commercial building complex in lower Manhattan owned by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which is an interstate agency. In addition to the two Twin Towers, which are the big ones, it also contains three World Trade Center and four office buildings known as 4, 5, 6, and 7 World Trade Center. A shopping mall, it's got restaurants, public plaza, and a major transportation hub underneath. That was a good thing, because that actually saved people's lives. Around 8.30, roughly 80 people have gathered to attend a Risk Waters Group Financial Technology Conference on the 106th floor of the North Tower. 
72 restaurant staff have arrived in advance of the morning's breakfast service and to plan for conference meetings. Other special events of the World Trade Center planned for September 11th include the annual National Association for Business Economics Conference, already underway at the Marriott, an evening dance performance on the World Trade Center's outdoor plaza, a Peace Corps information session scheduled for 6 p.m. and in six, in 6 World Trade Center. So you can see that that place is a big place. They, they use it for quite a bit. They say that, that the World Trade Center on a, a, any given day holds 250,000 people. So you can imagine how big it is. This is why I was shocked it came down. It was an absolutely monstrous place. Gigantic. At 8.37, after hearing hijacker Mohammed Atta's transmissions, Boston Air Traffic Control Center alerts the U.S. Air Force U.S. Air Force's Northeast Air Defense Sector, or NIADS, headquartered in Rome, New York. In response, NIADS mobilizes Air National Guard jets at Otis Air Force Base in Falmouth, Massachusetts, to identify and follow the hijacked Flight 11. At 8.42, scheduled to leave uh, Newark International Airport within minutes of the other hijacked flights, United Airlines Flight 93 takes off after a day due to routine traffic. On that flight, seven crew members, 33 passengers, and four hijackers are on board. The plane is heading to San Francisco. That's what the plan was. And there are 48,700 pounds of fuel loaded on it. All four terrorists are in zone A of the plane, which means they're all in the front of the plane. At 846... Five hijackers crash American Airlines Flight 11 into floors 93 through 99 of One World Trade Center, also known as the North Tower. 76 passengers and 11 crew members on board and, and hundreds inside the building were killed instantly. The crash severs all three emergency stairwells and traps hundreds of people on the 91st floor. New York City emergency dispatchers send police, paramedics, and firefighters to the North Tower immediately. Um, on uh, 14 blocks away, there was a fire department that was in a fire station that was investigating a possible gas leak. Uh, this is the one. Uh, this was an interesting one. This group was actually being filmed for a documentary by a pair of brothers. And this was the only flight. This was the only video of the flight 11 actually ramming into the North Tower. So you'll see he's actually filming the, um, he's filming the firefighters, checking the stuff. And it wasn't even something he was going to use in the, in the um, documentary. Then they heard the plane flying overhead. They all looked up, and he turned just in time for the to see the plane actually go into the building. En route to the scene, he signals a third alarm, for which 23 engine and ladder companies, 12 chiefs, and 10 specialized units to respond to a plane crash at Box 8087, the uh, New York Fire Department's shorthand reference for the World Trade Center. The Port Authority Police Department, responsible for the safety and security of the World Trade Center, in addition to regional bridges, tunnels, airports, 
and the Port of New York and New Jersey mobilize in a response to the attack. Uh, they are now trying to call people in to go and respond. The Everything was very confused at this moment. News organizations are realizing something hit the tower. A lot of people weren't even sure if something had hit the tower or if it was a small plane or what there was an explosion inside. There was so little. Nothing shows this more than um, Tom Kamenitsky from WCBS News Radio. Tom Kaminsky, Chopper 880. All right, uh, Pat, we are just currently getting a look at the World Trade Center. We have something that has happened here at the World Trade Center. We noticed flame and an awful lot of smoke from one of the towers of the World Trade Center. We are just coming up on uh, this scene. This is easily three quarters of the way up. We are, uh, this has, whatever has occurred has just occurred uh, within, uh, within minutes and uh, we are trying to determine exactly what that is, but currently we have a lot of smoke at the top of the towers of the World Trade Center. We will keep you posted. Tom, we just saw that smoke go up at about the same time you did. It was like one huge puff. That's exactly what we had seen. We had seen what uh, we had turned around with Jeff. We were at the George Washington Bridge. We had seen a fireball, and I can tell you it appears as though something has gone into the World Trade Center. I'm looking at the north side of what I believe, well, what is the North Tower, so I would uh, guess that's Tower Number 1. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is about three-quarters of the way up, maybe even three-fourths of the way up Tower 1. There is smoke now billowing out of the top of the World Trade Center. I'm looking at what appears to be broken windows. Uh, I want to say that this is about... Uh, 10 stories down from the top, maybe a little bit more than that. But there now appears to be smoke pouring out of the gash of the north side of the World Trade Center. My heavens, this has just, just happened within several minutes. Uh... The sheer panic you hear in his voice should pretty much tell you exactly what's happening there. And it was sheer terror. He didn't know what was going on. No one knew what was going on. They just saw smoke. I even see fire. 8.50. While visiting an elementary school in Sarasota, Florida, President George W. Bush is informed a small plane has hit, excuse me, the North Tower. Bush and his advisors assume this is just a crash. That's just an accident. They don't assume anything big. And by the way, this is something that the towers do plan. They do plan on small accidents like this. Because they do happen. Small planes, Cessnas, will hit the will hit the big, tall buildings. It's never happened before. Oh, it has happened before. So it, it's not something uncommon. The concept that this is a passenger plane was never a thing for these guys. They never thought it would be something like that. At 8.55, the South Tower, Tower 2, is declared safe by the Port Authority. Quote, your attention... Please, this came over the sound speaker. Your attention, please, ladies and gentlemen. Building 2 is secure. There is no need to evacuate Building 2. If you are in the midst of the evacuation, you may use the re-entry doors and elevators to return to your office. Repeat, Building 2 is secure. A really big, big mistake, but you got to understand, they thought this was an accident. They did not think this was actually terrorism as of yet. At 8.59, Port Authority Sergeant Al Devono orders both towers to be evacuated. 
One minute later, Port Authority Captain Whitaker expands the evacuation to the entire World Trade Complex. All seven buildings and all outside activity areas are now being cleared. The NYFD are beginning to climb the towers, uh, climb the tower by the stairs. The elevators are impassable. There are 124s in the building, and each floor took about six minutes to climb, since each firefighter is carrying 60 pounds of equipment. Here is Constance Lebetti describing what she saw as she was running down the stairs to get out of the building and watching the firefighters run up. Then the firefighters started to come up, and they would holler, move to the right, move to the right. I think it was probably about the 40th floor when the firefighters started coming up. And I remember thinking, they're, they're going to climb all the way up to 80? I mean, how, how are they going to do that? A few people clapped, a few people wished them, you know, blessings, God blessings. And uh, a few people patted them on the shoulders. Come, People shouted out to go to the 65th floor where there's a handicapped person or to, giving them information. And they just were stone-faced, just looked straight ahead. They really didn't show much emotion. I couldn't imagine these firefighters going up there into God knows what. At this time, people began to jump from the building. It is estimated it's somewhere between 100 and 200 people actually jumped from the tower. Now, can you imagine how bad it was in that building to say to yourself, I'm going to jump from 110 stories up because I can't stay here. People were melting, and I mean that exactly the way it sounds. People were actually being burned alive and melting because it was so hot in those rooms that they just thought, you know something, it's better if we... They actually did create a documentary on the people that jumped, and they we've got film of it. Uh, one of the films, the commemorative filmmaker's edition that I talked about yesterday, watch that. You hear them hitting the ground. It is really horrifying. It's haunting. It's not even horrifying. It's just haunting to think. Well, here's Florence Jones, who was wondering if she was going to have to jump from the 77th floor because she didn't know if she was going to be able to get down. Thank God her buddy said, no, we've got another stairwell. Let's go on Let's go on that one. Listen to her. I literally thought for a moment, because he tried to open the door, and all you could feel was the heat of the fire. I was like, oh gosh, am I going to have to jump because I wasn't going to wait for the firemen? Is he going to have to do what I just saw people doing? And I remember him running back across the floor and grabbing my jacket saying, let's go, let's go. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. Let's move on. 9 a.m. Earlier at 8.52 a.m., a flight attendant, likely named Robert John Fangman, had reached the United Airlines operator in San Francisco, California, and reported the hijacking underway. By 9 a.m., passengers Garnet Ace Bailey, Peter Burton Hansen, and David Brian David Sweeney have called their family members. This is one of the hardest things to listen to. Is This is the last time Brian David Sweeney is heard again by anybody on the outside world. 
and she wasn't home. So he left a message. And if you really listen hard, you could hear her crying in the background as she's playing, listening to the message. Let's listen it up. I don't know if you're going to be able to hear it here, but it's just heartbreaking. Message one. Jules, this is Ryan. Uh, listen, I'm an airplane that's been hijacked. And things don't go well. I'm looking good. I just want you to know I absolutely love you. I want you to do good. So happy this time. Uh, thanks to my parents and everybody. And I just totally love you. And uh, I'll see you in the Hi, babe. I'll call you. There are hundreds of those calls. They've actually made, they have made documentaries on them. So there are a whole load of them, and I, they're just, it's just really heartbreaking to watch. 9.02 a.m., an evacuation order is issued in the South Tower. Quote, may I have your attention, please? Repeating this message, the situation occurred in Building 1. If conditions warn on your floor... And you wish to start you you may wish to start an orderly evacuation. This was made by the Port Authority. At nine oh three, five hijackers crash United Airlines one seventy five into floors seventy seven through eighty five of two World Trade Center, the South Tower, killing the fifty one passengers and nine crew members aboard and an unknown number of people inside the building. The impact renders two of the three Emergency stairwells impassable and severs a majority of the elevator cables in this area, trapping many above the impact zone and inside elevator cars. As a matter of fact, because of the pressure within the building that was released, a lot of the fire went down the uh, into the elevators shafts into the elevator shafts and actually basically burned everybody in the elevator. The plane flew into the building at 590 miles an hour. That's substantially faster than the first plane that flew into the uh, into the North Tower, which only flew about 430 miles an hour. The impact was so hard that the, one of the plane's engines was found intact six blocks away. Here's the news reports. And here's the difference between the first and the second tower. Everybody was watching this one crash. Listen. Three sides of tower number one, and that is the only building... It's exploding right now, Tommy. We're seeing... Another... Another Apparently plane. that was another plane. We have a witness who we just spoke to a moment ago. We're hearing from Carl Tendler, who was at the Village Apartments in Washington Square. We're trying to bring him on the air. All right, that Carl. was a second plane uh, that just blew? Number one. It's been another one, Carl. Yes, he hit in building number one. The other building? Yes, he flew right into it. Describe exactly what you just saw, Yes, please. I saw this jet coming towards uh, the building. He was low. Uh, he was about halfway up. And he flew into, uh, it looked like the south side, south uh, east corner of, of the building. So uh, building number two is now burning. 
So uh, that's now either one plane or the or two planes flying into each building. With one aircraft that just hit the south corner, it looked like a twin-engine jet. That is about what was described. What you described earlier, wasn't it? You who told us. No, the, the first one was a DC three that hit the first building. Okay, we're seeing like it, it looks like some kind of sick confetti parade. There is debris flying out of that south tower. That was Pat Kelly from WCBS News Radio 880, and you can tell confusion. They did not know what was going on. As a matter of fact, no one knew what was going on. The military was trying to put planes in the air. They didn't know what they were looking for. This was called the fogs of war, the fog of war, where we're in a battle right now, surprise attack, and we don't know what's going on. We don't know how to handle it. And this is when everyone sits back and they talk about, well, let's get to that. I'll talk about that in a second. Because 9.05 a.m., while visiting the elementary school in Sarasota, Florida, George W. Bush learns from Chief of Staff Andrew Card that a second plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. 25 minutes later, before leaving the elementary school, the president delivers remarks calling the attacks a national tragedy. Now, at this point, they know that this is probably terrorism. I, I can't remember. I don't think Bush mentions it in this speech. But already, Dick, U.S. Vice President Dick Cheney, New York Governor George Pataki, FBI Director Robert S. Mueller III are already calling it terrorism. And George Bush, while he was being told about, about the attack, he leaves the reading of, to the kindergartners because he also knows that this is not an accident when a second plane runs into the uh, tower. So 9.35, he go, he, right before he leaves, at 9.35, he makes this statement. A difficult moment for America. Uh, today we've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. I have spoken to the vice president, to the governor of New York, to the director of the FBI, and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government uh, go to help the victims and their families and, the, and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. At that point, George Bush leaves the, the at 9:35 he leaves the can, he leaves the school the elementary school and boards Air Force 1 at Sarasota Brandon International Airport now on Air Force 1 now here's the kicker they don't know where to go they have no idea where to go what they decide to do is they're going to fly to Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana and find a secure location for landing and eventually what they decide to do is just fly around because they have absolutely no idea what's happening if this whole thing is over. And it turns out it's not. At 9.05, Rudy Giuliani arrives at the NYPD command post. At 9.12, flight attendant Renee A. May calls her mother, Nancy May, and tells her that the hijackers have seized control of the plane, forcing passengers and crew members to the rear. When they're disconnected, Nancy May calls American Airlines. Minutes later, Flight 77, Barbara K. Olson calls her husband, 
U.S. Solicitor General Theodore Olson, who is at the desk of the Department of Justice. She tells him the hijackers have taken over the flight using knives and box cutters. Olson alerts federal officials. At 9.30, a report by a U.S. Secret Service agent of the possibility of additional hijacked planes prompts OEM to evacuate its headquarters at Seven World Trade Center. At 9.36, the U.S. Secret Service agents evacuate Vice President Dick Cheney to the Presidential Emergency Operations Center beneath the White House. Now, if you know anything about this stuff, and I don't know that much, that thing can survive a nuclear bomb. So if one of those planes flies into the White House, they're going to be fine under there. At 9.37, American Flight 77 flies into the Pentagon. This clip is an interview with John Yates, who was in the Pentagon, and he talks about how he called his wife, not thinking that they were going to be attacked. And a few seconds later, they're attacked. One of my co-workers asked me if I knew what was going on in New York. So I said no, and she said, well, you've got to come see. And there's a crowd of people watching the TV. So I stood there for a few minutes and watched. And then I walked back to my desk. I called my wife. She said she knew, and I said, well, I just wanted to let you know I was okay. And she said, do me a favor. For the rest of the day, work from underneath your desk. So I laughed, and I said, yeah, honey, I will. I love you, and I'll see you tonight. And I walked back over, and by this time, the crowd kind of thinned out a little bit. And just as I decided to get up and leave, the plane hit the outside of the building. I was blown through the air, and when I landed... I really didn't know where I was. That kind of scared me because I knew the floor plan of our space better than I knew the floor plan of my own house. The room was just black and everything I touched burned my hands. I just started crawling on my hands and knees and I knew I was going in the right direction when it started getting a little bit lighter and I could feel water on my back from the sprinklers Eventually, I stood up and started walking down towards the center courtyard. I just took our paperwork and started the uh, the fax machine, you know, put the papers in the fax, dialed the number, and at the exact same moment that I hit the start key, the plane hit the building. And you, know, you can look at back on it now, you can see humor in just about anything. At first, I thought I'd blown up the fax machine. I was, you know, it's like that initial state of shock, and I thought, my God, what did I do? And then I realized that it wasn't me. Um, I smelled the jet fuel, and being around the Air Force for 30-some years, in one way or another, I recognized jet fuel when I smelled it. So, And we had heard on the radio prior to that about um, the, the, the Twin, Twin Towers. Towers. I'm sorry, I, f- I forgot I had... Uh, combine those clips. The second was Louise Rogers. She was an accountant at the Pentagon at the time. At 9.42, the FAA orders all planes to land. That in itself is an entire story. There is a new documentary released, I think this year, about how they were able to land 4,000 planes at the same time. Well, at the same time, prohibiting the takeoff of any other plane. 
And it gets really confusing at that point because pilots usually have complete control over their plane. So there is a case where this, this in this documentary, one pilot was saying, well, listen, I'm going to land in Edmonton because, you know, we can land over there and there'll be plenty of room. And the flight controller said, no, you are ordered to land. In this case, it was in, um, I can't remember where, New Jersey or something. You are ordered to land here. You do not have a choice. You are to land. And the reason is because they thought there were still terrorists on these planes. They had no idea if there were terrorists aboard. They weren't sure they weren't talking to terrorists. I mean, it's just amazing. And a lot of these pilots, they wanted to land ASAP because they weren't sure there, were t- there weren't terrorists on the ground. And of course, there's that four, landing 4,000 planes all at the same time into a set number of airports? What if a plane hits another plane? This did happen. There were worries. There were close calls. The flight controllers did a fantastic job. 9.45 a.m., the White House and Capitol building are evacuated. All government buildings, bridges, and other public offices are closed. At 9.58 a.m., 37 phone calls are known to have been made from hijacked Flight 93, most from the rear of the plane. One of the last calls was made by Edward P. Felt, who uses his cell phone to dial 911 after closing himself in a restroom to avoid detection. By 9.58 a.m., now you might ask, how does he call on a cell phone? Flight 93 was already cruising at 8,000 feet high. So they had gone from 40,000 feet to 8,000 feet. They were really low. And so they were able, a lot of people were able to make cell phone calls because they were in range of the towers. Uh, By 9.58, Flight 93 is flying so low that it succeeds in reaching emergency operators in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania. This is, this next call is by a gal named Alice Hoagland telling her son, Mark Bingham, who is on Flight 93, to do something because she knew the terrorists were going to crash the plane. They'd already crashed three planes. And she was only able to get his voicemail. Here it is. Mark, apparently it's terrorists and they're hell-bent on crashing the aircraft. So if you can, try to take over the aircraft. Uh, 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 There doesn't seem to be much plan to land uh, land the aircraft normally. So I guess your best bet would be to try to take it over if you you can or tell the other passengers. There's one flight that they say is headed toward San Francisco. It might be yours. Uh, uh, So if you can, group some people and perhaps do the best you can to to get control of it. Uh, I love you, sweetie. Good luck. Bye-bye. I got to tell you, those voicemails that you hear, they're absolutely horrifying. They're absolutely, I mean, they're heartbreaking. And if you don't have, and that's that's why this is going to be so much longer, is because you can't just go over the timeline without actually really listening to this stuff. Because the pain that is out there, this is the problem. This is why I love companies like the 911 Memorial. Because they actually bring out the humanity in this whole thing. It wasn't like, for me, when we talk about Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor is a historic event that I remember because it was an important part of history, but you don't realize 
the humanity, the life lost, the pain that's created. Okay, 9.59, after burning for 56 minutes, the South Tower collapses in 10 seconds. More than 800 civilians and first responders inside the building and in the surrounding area are killed as a result of the attack. Here is just some of the horror coming from an independent journalist named Catherine, uh, Catherine Lithold. Oh, oh my God. Oh, oh my oh God. My. No. Oh my God. No. no. Oh my God. No, it's going to fall down. Oh my God. Even though, you know, no words were said, you can just tell. Just the absolute horror. And this is a journalist. Honestly, does it really take a lot for a journalist to have no words? It sure does. And that site, that site did. Again, all this is on video. If you go to the uh, 911memorial.org, you can actually watch this stuff. It's really, it's really a great sight. At 10.03 a.m., four hijackers crash Flight 93 in a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, uh, after passengers and crews stormed the cockpit. At the time, 33 passengers were killed, seven crew members. The cra crash site was 20 minutes from Washington, D.C., it was thought that these this plane was going to either crash into the Capitol building or the White House. During the flight, it was witnessed by a Cessna that was flying close by. The Cessna was following. During the attack, and I we don't have any of this attack on video, on audio, but during the attack, uh, they had subdued the two strong men because there were only four. There were only four... Um, terrorists on this plane and the pilot was trying to turn the plane to dislodge the people get them off their feet they eventually broke into the cockpit and that's when the pilot just slammed down the plane so it went basically straight down into the ground no survivors at 10 oh i forgot something kind of important at 10:59 also I shouldn't have forgotten this, but I did. Uh, continuity of government procedures established to protect high-level government officials during national emergencies are implemented for the first time in American history. Now, George Bush said it happened about 20 minutes before, but it didn't. It started, it started right at 9.59. At 10.15, the E-ring of the Pentagon collapses. At 10.28, the North Tower collapses after burning for 102 minutes. More than 1,600 people were killed. Um, this is the spectators' reaction to the collapsing of the North Tower.
again, folks, more than just more than just a spot in history, humanity, the humanity and the whole thing, the terror, the horror, the nightmare nightmares these people went through. A lot of people were suffering PTSD and they weren't in the building. They were just watching part of their city just be destroyed. Don't get me wrong. The Twin Towers were ugly as all hell. They were, but they were iconic. And there they go, destroyed. 11.02 a.m., near the World Trade Center, when the South Tower collapses, Mayor Rudy Giuliani and senior members of his administration find temporary shelter inside an office building close by. As the dust begins to settle, they walk north, intent on establishing a new base of operations for the city government, somewhere closer to the, the site. Reporters catch up with the mayor, who urges the public at 11.02 to evacuate Lower Manhattan. He will continue to address the public in briefings at temporary headquarters at the New York City Police Academy throughout the day. At 12.16 p.m., the last flight still in the air above continental United States lands. In two and a half hours, U.S. airspace has cleared an estimated 4,500 commercial and general aviation plans planes that is a feat in itself plane passengers become stranded as flights are canceled anyone attempting to travel by train bus or rent a car find that everything is canceled don't forget they closed bridges they closed rail lines they closed everything because they didn't know where this would continue if this would continue and any rental cars were basically sold out in minutes Air Force One, carrying President George W. Bush and members of his staff, traveled throughout the day, throughout the country, in secret, and landed at secure locations to refuel. Later, finally, President Bush says he's going to return to Washington, D.C. They weren't sure that he should do that, but he ordered them to actually land in Washington, D.C., that he needed to get there. He landed at Air Force Andrews Base at 2.50 p.m. and took a helicopter to the White House. At 12.30 p.m., the lower section of North Tower Stairwell B survives the building's collapse, protecting a group of 13 first responders and one civilian who had been attempting to evacuate down the stairs. Within hours of the tower's collapse, the first responders emerged from the debris and direct res and direct rescuers to the civilian early afternoon this is a few hours into the afternoon some rescue workers and journalists begin referring to the mass destruction at the world trade center as ground zero this is kind of an interesting term because it's typically only used for sites where there has been an atomic bomb unleashed First responders, search and rescue teams, and volunteers continue to converge on ground zero throughout the day. Rescuers use special tools to peer into voids and search for remnants of stairwells and elevators that might shelter survival. The last rescue won't occur till September 12th. At 3 p.m., rescuers free Port Authority employee Pascal Buzelli from the rubble of the North Tower. Buzelli had been in the process of evacuating the North Tower when the building began to collapse. He's situated somewhere between the 22nd and 13th floors. Buzelli just basically crouched into the fetal position and hours later woke up 15 feet above the ground. So he actually just got lucky. 
Uh, he was on the 15th, uh, somewhere between the 13th and 22nd floors and fell 130 feet without actually, I don't know if he got hurt, but he fell 130 feet and survived. At 5.20 p.m., after burning for hours, Seven World Trade Center collapses. This is a 47-foot tower, and it was evacuated earlier. Nobody was hurt. At 8.30 p.m., George W. Bush addresses the nation. Now, this is going to be longer because I'm going to include the entire speech. It's only a four-minute speech. So let's listen to George W. Bush, the first wartime president in a long time. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge, huge structures collapsing, have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat. But they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world, and no one will keep that light from shining. Today, our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature, and we responded with the best of America, with the daring of our rescue workers, with the caring of, for strangers and neighbors who came to give blood and help in any way they could. Immediately following the first attack, I implemented our government's emergency response plans. Our military is powerful, and it's prepared. Our emergency teams are working in New York City and Washington, D.C. to help with local rescue efforts. Our first priority is to get help to those who have been injured and to take every precaution to protect our citizens at home and around the world from further attacks. The functions of our government continue without interruption. Federal agencies in Washington, which had to be evacuated today, are reopening for essential personnel tonight and will be open for business tomorrow. Our financial institutions remain strong, and the American economy will be open for business as well. The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. I appreciate so very much the members of Congress who have joined me in strongly condemning these attacks. And on behalf of the American people, 
I thank the many world leaders who have called to offer their condolences and assistance. America and our friends and allies join with all those who want peace and security in the world. And we stand together to win the war against terrorism. Tonight, I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve, for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. This is a day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. America has stood down enemies before, and we will do so this time. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. Thank you. Good night. And God bless America. Now, a lot of people gave George Bush a load of crap for what he did. And they were complaining that he didn't leave the kindergarten right away. He didn't leave his story time right away. Of course, we find out later it's because he thought this whole thing was an accident until the second plane, and then he he paused in the second plane. And later in his memoir, he had said that, well, the reason I didn't leave is because I had kids there and I didn't want to panic them. And then there was his flying around the country because nobody knew. That wasn't his choice, by the way. Nobody knew what was happening as of yet, but they felt he kind of abandoned his post. And then he actually ordered them to land back in Washington because he needed to get back to the the country. There's just, he, he was given a lot of crap. And of course, the media is just as bad back then as it is now. Well, it's worse now. But he did the best job he could under the circumstances. Because let's face it, this was not a normal, this is not a normal thing. And I don't think it's fair to put, if Joe Biden went through this, I wouldn't blame Joe Biden for not doing exactly what we think he should have done. So, 10.30 p.m. Around this time, rescuers locate a Port Authority police officer, William Jimeno, and uh, Port Authority police officer, Sergeant John McLaughlin, injured but alive in the debris of the World Trade Center. They free uh, Jimeno after three hours of dangerous tunneling work. Sergeant McLaughlin's rescue will take another eight hours. On September 12th, in the afternoon, Janelle Guzman, the 18th survivor and the last survivor, was actually pulled from the wreckage. To this day, to this day, we still have people out there who are suffering from the effects of 9-11. The air was filled with debris, People are dying of cancer, even to this day. There are lawsuits, of course, but, you know, I I don't know who you're going to sue with that. But that's it. That's the story of 9-11. It's a great story. Um, 
it's great to really not a great story it's a bad story but it's great to understand the story and know what happened and also know not just the details but know the humanity that comes with it and i'm probably if i continue this podcast probably going to play this same episode next year on september 11th so i hope you guys have a great weekend Enjoy your family. Be with your family. This should be a day you are with your family. Teach your kids about this. Make sure they never forget. Because I can tell you now, we've forgotten already. September 11th created the most patriotic, the most togetherness we've been since, I'd say, the 1980 Olympics when the American men's hockey team defeated the Soviet Union. I think we should try and use 9-11 and not forget it, like we have already. And we didn't, we forgot it pretty quickly. And I remember talking in 2008, 2007, you know, people are just going to forget this. And then we're going to go back to the same garbage. Well, we are back to the same garbage. And we're back to the same garbage in spades now. Where Americans are saying that other Americans should be jailed or die because of this. I mean, there are people out there who still think 9-11 should not be celebrated. Because it makes Muslims look bad. It just doesn't make Muslims look bad. It makes the Taliban look bad. It makes Al-Qaeda look bad. It makes radical Islam look bad because they are bad. They're evil. And we should continue to believe this. But, you know, it is what it is. What are you going to do? Except fight it and make sure that people in your family, they remember this day. They don't forget this day. Okay, I hope you have a good weekend. Enjoy it. Um, if you visit my website at dumbassestalkingpolitics.com, you can actually go to the link for the 911memorial.org timeline and actually cruise the site. It's a very well done site. This is Gene, and you've listened to Dumbasses Talking Politics.